This episode of Thinking Through Autonomy is in partnership with the Eno Center for Transportation. Eno is an independent nonprofit think tank focused on transportation. As an organization, Eno shapes public debate on critical multimodal transportation issues and builds an innovative network of transportation professionals. Eno's Aviation Working Group is a standing advisory group on all matters related to aviation policy. In their latest report, Bridging the Gap, Sustaining UAS Progress While Pursuing a Permanent Regulatory Framework will inform today's discussion. Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap, Managing Partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. We're here with Steve Jangelis of the Airline Pilots Association. And you're probably wondering, what is the Airline Pilots Association? What is ALPA? We're going to hear more, but ALPA represents 63,000 professional pilots. And uh, oh, by the way, they have three Collier trophies to their name for their design work with the Boeing 777, navigation technology called ADSB and their work on the commercial aviation safety team. And if you're wondering, what's a Collier Trophy? Let's just say that's the Nobel Prize of Aviation. Steve's the Aviation Safety Chairman for ALPA. He's an accomplished Airbus A320 captain for one of the world's largest airlines. And previously, he was also a 727 captain. He oversees all safety issues for ALPA, and he's a member of the Royal Aeronautical Society. Today, we're gonna learn more about ALPA, and compare and contrast the challenges ALPA faces on commercial aviation safety versus those facing the unmanned industry. And we'll try to put these in some context. Steve, welcome. Ken, glad to be here. Thanks for the kind introduction. Thrilled to have you. And I just want to start in your pilot. I'm going to start at flight level 300 and ask you a little bit about ALPA. But, you know, ALPA starts airline pilot, and I want to know. What does it take to become an airline pilot? Well, I'll tell you what, Ken, it takes a lot of hard work. Uh, You need to be focused on the job at hand while you're flying your aircraft or studying the books. And that involves not only just your pre-flight planning, but uh, also operating the aircraft. Uh, you, You have to keep your head in the game right from the beginning. And so that starts as a primary student when you first take those controls all the way through when you become an airline captain. Uh, I I recommend to students that uh, approach me and say, you know, I want to become an airline pilot. This is what I'd like to do. Do I have to be good at math? Well, I have to be honest with you. I was not great at math, but uh, I was really good at staying focused on the task at hand. And I think that makes a good airline pilot is someone who can stay focused and stays calm and under control when pressed with a situation that may seem out of the normal. Which makes me wonder if I'm looking up at the sky and I think, just like you said, I want to be an airline pilot. How long does it take, you know, from the day that I have that idea, and maybe that's the day I jump into an airplane for the first time, until I can say I fly for Delta, Amer- American, United, JetBlue, um, you know, fill in the name. But is it a fast process? Is it a slow process? What's my investment in time in that career? That's a great question. There are some uh, ways to accelerate your training to where you can get into an airline cockpit much quicker uh, 
than the norm. Right now, presently, the norm to get from just you know, the first time you take the controls to an airline flight deck can be as many as five to six years. Uh, a lot of that time is spent in your primary training, first learning just the basics of flying, then going into instrument training, learning how to fly in clouds and, and bad weather, to then you go on to multi-engine training, and uh, eventually you work on to your commercial pilot's license and then onward to your airline transport pilot license. So those can take uh, as little as three months, and depending on how motivated and how uh, how the weather turns out for you, if you can get that training done, uh, you know, that getting all those licenses completed is about five to six years. Now, there are some ways to accelerate your route into the flight deck. The FAA gives credit for military training and flight time, uh, also to accredited universities. Uh, if you complete their four-year course and get a degree from those universities, some of those credits can be applied to your training uh, or, or excuse me, to your experience levels, and, and uh, you can receive your ratings much quicker to fly in an airline flight deck. But the minimum you have to be is uh, 23 years old at most airlines to join as, as a flight crew member. So uh, it's not too far past you learning how to drive. Uh, and if you're thinking about it as a second career, it, uh, if you plan on the five to six year plan, you should be okay to make it into a large major airline cockpit. Wow, that's that's really interesting and, and to some extent amazing. Let's maybe turn the focus to this organization called the Airline Pilots Association where you serve as the aviation safety chair. For those members of our audience who aren't familiar with ALPA, but you know, maybe they understand the idea of a professional pilot career, what does ALPA do? What is what is ALPA? Well, the Airline Pilots Association is, is, a, is a union of uh, laborers that uh, provide services to the airlines, but that's not all that we do. A lot of people assume that if you're with a, a union that, uh, you know, you're the folks that have picket signs and, and are, are complaining about uh, issues at your job or, you know, that's, that's the vision some people have of unions. But our association differentiates ourselves because we were built originally on safety. We have, a, we have a motto at our uh, association, it's called Schedule with Safety, and, and that's what we basically uh, set all of our goals by, is, is remembering that safety is, is job number one prior to all of that other information, because if we don't have a safe airline, we do not have jobs. Uh, people will choose to fly another airline. In fact, the history of our association started with 24, as we call them, key men that organized and sat down back in the days when only airmail was being flown. And a lot of the carriers and companies that were employing these pilots figured that safety was the, was costing them too much. And so these 24 pilots banded together and uh, started the airline pilots association over 85 years ago. And they tried to set the record straight to the owners of the airlines that, you know, we need minimum safety standards to continue. Sadly though, uh, almost half of those pilots that joined together of the 24, 12 of them passed away within the first year after the association was created. So, uh, you know, there is a definite history there. And, and now that we're in the modern world of, of airliners that cross oceans and uh, go to pretty much every place on the globe, we try to uphold those standards of those 24 original key pilots 
and make sure that flying is safe, not only for the pilots, but also for the traveling public and crew members as well. And certainly if you would ask a member of the traveling public, what's the safest way to travel? My guess is 99 times out of 100, they're gonna say, flying on a commercial airliner is the safest way to travel. So I think that's a tribute to the work that ALPA and its members has done. It's a tribute to the aviation manufacturers. It's a tribute to the airline operators that they've really taken, you know, back then, which was a new and exciting and unknown technology and made it almost commonplace. But I'm assuming that along the way, there were some really key safety issues that confronted ALPA. And I'm wondering, Steve, when you look back at, at your vast experience in aviation safety and you think about the last five or 10 years, what are some of those key challenges that manned aviation has faced? And what were issues do you think that have contributed to the level of safety we have now in not only the national airspace system, but certainly commercial aviation? You know, Ken, uh, there have been a number of issues that the airline pilots have been a, uh, at the front of uh, the uh, advocacy for uh, that have contributed to the safety of not only passenger travel, but cargo travel. Uh, you know, it has been coined the phrase that ALPA is the conscience of the industry by an airline manager. Uh, we are the largest non-governmental safety organization in the world right behind the United States FAA and the Pentagon, uh, we would be very close third uh, to those organizations. We have a number of volunteers with specialties in chemical engineering. Uh, we have pilot lawyers. We have pilot doctors. We have uh, pilot dentists. Uh, we, we, what we do is we try to capture that information from those professionals and advocate for good things like uh, collision avoidance systems. There was a period in our, in our history where aircraft were colliding uh, at a pretty regular basis. And now they've just basically, those numbers have almost disappeared. And that's due to the advocacy of our organization, as well as working with the manufacturers and the airlines to try to get equipment inside the aircraft to avoid aircraft collisions. So uh, to say that safety is no accident sounds like a catchphrase, uh, but we're trying to be at the forefront of, of uh, advocacy and, and looking for safer ways of doing business before the accident does happen. So I think that's, uh, that brings us into the modern world. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've really been doing lots of work with all stakeholders on such things as cargo safety and security, uh, shipment of hazardous materials, uh, and now working with uh, stakeholders and new entrants that are making their way into our airspace. We used to have the airspace to ourselves as, as uh, airplane operators. And now we're starting to see UAS equipment and commercial space entities that want to fly and use that airspace. And it's, it's up to us to use our expertise and our knowledge and, and our history to, to work with those uh, groups and individuals and, and try to get them to the same safe level of flying that you alluded to earlier that the traveling public believes is, uh, is the gold standard in the world. So is it safe for me to, to view your role and ELPA's role at really the center of technology, human factors, and even procedures in an airplane cockpit that really all contribute as, you know, maybe three legs to the stool of safety? Well said. I couldn't have said it any better, Ken. Exactly. There's a number of things that go into it, not just the operational side, the human factors. Uh, there's a number of things 
that uh, create a safe flight. It's not just we can point at checklists or mechanical equipment that's installed on the aircraft. It's it's a holistic approach. Uh, you know what are the uh, what are the uh, infrastructure that's allowing the aircraft to fly in their area? We have air traffic control professional uh, professionals in our ranks that are working with our air traffic controllers to design new airspace and safer airspace and more efficient airspace. And, and that's important. So it's, it's a holistic approach. It's not just one topic we deal with. We deal with them all when uh, they come forward from the industry. The topic of how we safely integrate unmanned aerial systems or UAS, or maybe as some people call drones, into the national airspace is the topic that brought us together for this session. And I want to picture you in the cockpit of your A320 looking out the window today and God forbid you either see a drone or you see an unmanned aircraft. What are you thinking about? I mean, we know the obvious, gosh, I don't want to hit it. And I don't want that crazy thing to hit me. But what are the, the safety issues that come to mind when you're looking out and you, you know, maybe metaphorically see that UAS flying overhead, seeing the drone down below? Well, Ken, I, I'm sure you've probably driven in your car and clipped a bug on the windscreen, I'm sure. And, you you know, you, it makes a big splat on your windshield and, you know, it just comes out of nowhere, right? It just shows up and all of a sudden splat, there it is on your window. Uh, I have hit birds with my aircraft uh, numerous times. And uh, again, you know, one of the questions that's asked is, well, did you see the bird? Why didn't you avoid it? It happens so quickly, if you could imagine any near... Uh, encounter with a, uh, a, a winged vehicle, uh, it happens very fast, very rapid, because sometimes the closure rate could be as many as 350 knots. So time to react and time to think about what's the, the course of action to take is, uh, is minimal. Um, you know, the difference between uh, striking a bird and striking a UAS is, is that a bird is flesh and bone. Whereas a UAS could be a number of composite materials, metal, screws, batteries, uh, plastics. And, you know, we all, not to, you know, look back on something that happened uh, in our business uh, over 10 years ago uh, with the Miracle on the Hudson flight. Uh, but, uh, you know, birds took out the engines of an aircraft. And, and I, I would be, I would be, uh, uh, naive to think that a, a few drones couldn't hurt an airplane and, and make a, a fatal blow onto it. So it is very important to me and to my organization to make sure that we have safe practices and safe operators of these vehicles and, and we integrate them in a methodical, safe manner. Which makes me think that one of those foundational principles has to be a body of laws and a body of regulations that set the parameters on how the unmanned systems are used. Do you have a degree of comfort that we have all of that in place? Or is there more work that needs to be done? Are we at, at the beginning of the regulatory um, problem or are we at the end of the regulatory problem with solutions? Well, I'll tell you what, I think it's consistently, it's constantly evolving. Uh, you know, drones are here, drones are here to stay. And we recognize and understand that the socioeconomic benefits of, of uh, UAS vehicles flying uh, are, are countless. And, and we are in full support of a lot of the things that they are proposing to do with drones. And they're doing them right now. And, and that is 
that is, uh, you know, uh, inspections, uh, you know, uh, delivering food. Uh, there's a number of uh, socioeconomical benefits that the UAS has provided. We're not going to get in the way of that. But what we need to do is, is team up with the operators and with the manufacturers of those, uh, uh, those vehicles and sit down and say, look, learn from our experiences as, as a, uh, a legacy uh, air system, if you will. And, and you know, we've, we do have crashes on the history books that were uh, contributing to today's safety record. And what we're trying to do is, is work with the stakeholders in the UAS community to say, you know, you may say, well, we didn't have an accident or we haven't had an accident, but you probably will. And what can you do learning from our experiences on prevention and detection and risk mitigation using those tools to make sure that you do stay safe completely through the airspace? Because one thing I'd like to point out to, to your listeners is, is that, you know, if, if uh, a drone as you staged it earlier, you know, hits my aircraft, uh, it could be a fatal blow. And the problem is, is that not only would it bring media scrutiny, it would bring uh, monetary uh, uh, penalties to folks that might have been negligent or not, uh, not following the safest best practices out there. So, um, you know, we are the safest mode of travel in, in legacy aviation. We want to make sure that the airspace itself stays clean and safe for all operators, and, and that's going to take everyone. All, all, everybody's got to be all in on this uh, from you know a safety standpoint. If I hit on maybe the three big topics that I've heard since we started talking, it seems like there is a need for training. That, that seems like what we just talked about. There is a need for good identification of the drones or the unmanned aircraft so that we're able to detect them and avoid them. And we also need to integrate them safely into the national airspace system. One of the, the things that I think is a perception out there that unmanned aircraft operators or maybe, you know, the, the drone operators need education and need knowledge equivalent of an airline pilot, of an A320 captain or a first officer. How, how do you think we should go about determining how much information a person needs to do a job with the drone? Is it, is it a, a licensure? Is it book reading? What, did, what does manned aviation say about what you need to know as your airplanes get bigger? You know, that's a great question. And we are not the arbiter to dictate to the UAS community and to the public of, of what they should do or what they need to do. What we need to do is get together with everybody in the room and decide those those benchmarks or those standards, um, you know, I would I would hope at a minimum uh, that uh, operators that uh, you know are up in the airspace that I am using are are going to be trained uh, with uh, you know the ideas of airspace, weather, uh, what to do in contingencies, uh, working with air traffic control. Uh, you know, there's a number of uh, benchmarks and standards that uh, need to be determined by not just my organization, but all of the stakeholders in the UAS community on how to do the safest operation that we can do right now. And of course, technology is going to lead this down the line. There's going to be more uh, to come into not only my vehicle, but also into the vehicles that are going to be unmanned. 
but we can't rely on a pure technology solution. So it's going to take a lot of sitting down and talking and realizing our wants and needs and also the other stakeholders' wants and needs. But, uh, you know, one thing I'd like to point out is, is that, you know, you, you talked about identification. And, you know, in order for me to be a taxi driver uh, in the state of Florida where I live, uh, I have to get my vehicle uh, registered here. Uh, it has to have a license plate. It has to have a VIN number plated onto it. I have to have a driver's license from the state in question. I also have to have a commercial license to go out and do pickup and, and drop-offs. So uh, not only is my vehicle identified, I am identified. I am a known quantity. And this is something that we've been working with the industry to say, you know, if you're going to be up there operating, I think just recently we just saw a baseball game get delayed by an unknown vehicle, uh, probably somebody who's maybe a hobbyist or a, uh, you know, someone who was just being, uh, if you want to call it uh, uh, an observer of a baseball game, probably didn't know they were doing anything wrong. But uh, no one could identify the drone and no one could go back and, and trace it back to its owner. So uh, I, I think we have to do more in the way of identifying and certifying the operators. That was the Pittsburgh Pirates baseball game you were talking about. And this show is being recorded from Pittsburgh. So that, uh, caught, our, that, that caught our attention. <laughs> let, let me, though, in the last couple minutes we have, I just want to move to a different aspect of safety that we really haven't touched. And so far we've been talking about, as you know, operational factors, technology, but all these aircraft are operated within the framework of a business. So, you know, there is, I'll call it a ramp, there's a boardroom, there's a CEO. Are there tools that an organization can use to align their business with safety principles, uh, or are they just kind of left on their own right now? You know, that is a, that's a great question. What is out there and what's available to a, a drone operator uh, can also be modeled by what is out there and available for the airlines. Uh, right now, airlines don't compete on safety. Uh, that's one thing that's important. And also the manufacturers don't compete on safety either. You know, when you go buy a car, what's the first thing the salesman wants to tell you about is, look at these airbags. They're better than this at brand or, you know, ours are better than theirs. Airlines and manufacturers do not do that. They all share the data that they have. If they find something or they see something that's out there uh, that could affect the safety of the operation, they share with everyone. They don't just say, well, I'm going to prevent my airline from crashing. Uh, and I think that that's what we need to have is that data sharing side of safety analysis and risk management. Uh, I, I think that all uh, UAS operators and businesses that are out there working need to share that information. But part of that has to come with trust. They have to be able to share the information knowing that no one's going to crack down on them and uh, uh, shut them down because someone's interpreted that they think that they're operating unsafe. And so these are just some of the hurdles that uh, we have to put together uh, as, as an industry to try to get uh, the businesses that are trying to get into drone operations or are currently doing drone operations into sharing their data. Because one thing we have learned in uh, manned uh, legacy aviation is, is that sharing of data has increased our safety output. And, uh, and that's part of the reason why it's the safest it's ever been in history. Steve, with the time we have left uh, with our last question, I would like to talk about the future. And I want to put you back in the cockpit 
of your airplane 10 years in the future. And I want to ask you, when you're sitting in that cockpit, you're flying hundreds of people through the sky, you're commanding a crew, and 10 years from now, when you look out the window and you see an unmanned aircraft, what do you want to think? What do you want to have as the first thought in your head when you see that happening? I want to know that that uh, vehicle and that operator is, is as well-trained and as well-equipped as I am uh, to operate in our airspace. And I want to make sure that we're all playing on the same level field uh, as far as regulations go and operational standards. Uh, again, collaboration is going to be key to this. Uh, we're going to have to come together and come up with a way to integrate safely. But, uh, you know, of course, we have to do it with, with profits in mind. But uh, we have to keep in mind that, uh, you know, there isn't a dollar amount you can put on a safety device on, onto a vehicle. And so, uh, you know, if we were to have a mishap, uh, it affects that mode of, of transport uh, across the board, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, a UAS striking a building, UAS striking a vehicle, an aircraft uh, landing in a field. Uh, you know, it, it hurts the industry because in today's 24-hour news cycle, and today's public uh, uh, involvement in day-to-day -day news stories, there's going to be a lot of accountability questions that are going to have to be asked. And so, you know, to answer your question, I, I would just make sure, I would just hope to make sure that the, the folks that are operating their vehicles are as well-trained and as well-prepared and well-equipped as I am in my flight tech. With that word, I want to thank you so much for being in this segment. And also, thank you for contributing to the Eno Aviation Working Group. Great having you on. Thanks, Steve. Thanks a lot, Ken. It's been a great pleasure. This podcast is edited by Piper Creative. Piper works with startups, Fortune 500 companies, and everyone in between to produce podcasts, YouTube videos, and compelling digital media. Learn more at pipercreative.co.